It's easy to see all its hard edges as winter settles over us with a hush or howl. The cracked ice in shards, wind that bites us as we step out into the elements. The vibrant green from warmer months has drained from the landscape, and the longer nights plunge us in darkness with clear skies and stars. But they are so far away to truly feel their light and warmth seems impossible. The cold can feel so cruel in its darkness, so unforgiving to remind us of the belief of unending barrenness in this season. Meanwhile, far away from this Virginia winter, there is a place where the stars have fallen. It's balmy and lush, if we were there, we might even hear the crashing waves of the Pacific Ocean onto the shore. These stars are painted red and white, and they sit nestled in verdant green shrubs, and within their vibrancy is a long, burning glow, a storied past that is equal parts history and folklore, of the familiar and the foreign, of the tamed and of the wild. I'm Allison B. Young, and this is Gathered Storied Botanicals. Despite being so far away, it is likely that we have all seen these stars, especially this time of year. We have seen them while buying groceries or at big box hardware stores like Home Depot. And it's likely we saw them all clustered as a display in shopping malls or the work holiday party we dressed up for. They've also filled the flower shop where I work these last few weeks, wrapped in tinsel and finished off with a bow. These stars are poinsettias. Native to Mexico and Central America, they prefer warmer climates. They also don't look quite like the ones we encounter around the holidays. Instead of the compact mound of bright red bracts or modified leaves, the wild poinsettias are wily. They almost grow like a vine winding up, and a quick Google search will show the red radial shapes reaching up on long, almost leggy stems like the arching of a shooting star its tail following it. You have to look closely to see the actual flower on a poinsettia. They are golden yellow structures that remind me of a fish's mouth. It is these bracts, these colored leaves surrounding the tiny blooms that are so striking to us and that resemble the star shape. And as Matt Condeus, the author and creator of In Defense of Plants, explains, the vibrant scarlet and cream whites are thanks to the Earth's axial tilt. As the northern hemisphere begins to tilt away from the sun, days grow shorter, and in turn, poinsettia plants begin to mature their flowers. At the same time, changes within the leafy bracts cause them to start producing pigments, going into full, productive, and colorful mode when the days are shorter than the nights. It is as though the poinsettia understands the darkness and the need for a little extra light. 
and so they brighten our wintry season accordingly. In the Earth's tilt back to warmer months, these bracts typically shift to the green of their neighboring leaves. Perhaps it is the plant's ability to light up the cold winter that it's come to symbolize warm sentiments like good cheer and merriment. It's also the botanical embodiment of the Star of Bethlehem. Whether seen the traditional red or white varieties, or shades of pink, or even poinsettias with white flecks or marbling on its bracts, the image of this flower often takes me back to the bold lines and rich color of a childhood staple of mine, the illustrated books by Tomi Dipala. My mom often read these books to me growing up, including The Legend of the Poinsettia. The folktale begins with a young girl. One source refers to her as Pepita, but Dipala's rendition of the story calls her Lucida. She is a young, dutiful, and pious girl, eager to help her family and be a part of her village. As Christmas time approaches, the town's priest asks Lucida's mother to weave a new blanket for the newborn Jesus of the church's nativity scene. Lucida attentively stood by the loom, holding lengths of spun wool for her mother to feed into the weaving. After a few days of working, Lucida's mother fell ill and couldn't finish the blanket in time for their Christmas Eve mass. She was taken to stay with family to recover while Lucida and her siblings stayed at home with their grandmother. While I can't pinpoint any memory of my own, the feeling of a young child realizing their parent may not be able to be there in the way they've always known them to be is frightening. It has to feel so lonely. I imagine this is how Lucida had to feel, a kind of free fall, in which she tries to grab hold of anything to steady herself. And so, Lucida went to the loom and set to work, determined to finish the weaving in time for Christmas Eve for the priest in the congregation, for her mom. But the strands began to tangle and snag, the colors all bunched up and the pattern lost its rhythm and refused to abide by her fingers. Lucida tried but couldn't undo her mistakes, and the weaving couldn't be finished. And it was Christmas Eve. Candlelight lit the path to the church, and a procession of villagers made their way inside. Everyone held gifts to leave at the nativity scene. But Lucida stood at the edge of the woods, watching. Her shawl was wrapped over her shoulders, and she was sick with worry and sadness over her mother and the ruined blanket. She felt very far away from the light and warmth that seemed to glow from the church. As Lucida watched her family and friends from afar, Tomi Tapala describes an old woman emerging from the shadows and approaching the young girl. I have a message for you, said the woman. She had learned that Lucida's mother was gaining strength back and that she'd be well enough to come home soon. The woman told the young girl to join the rest of her family in the church. 
Still reluctant to go in empty-handed, Lucida glanced around and pulled up a clump of nearby weeds. She wrapped her arms around the bundle of grain as if embracing someone, walked into the church and left them at the nativity scene. At first there was the cavernous quiet, the soft murmuring and the creaking pews that comes from churches, and then the congregation fell to a stunned silence at Lucida's gift. The weeds had transformed, burning their crimson red as if someone had struck a match. They glowed at the floor of the church, illuminating the magic and sentiment of the kind gift. And outside the church, surrounding the village, the night was lit up not by candles, not by stars, but by these flowers. They weren't weeds at all. The earth tilted away from the sun, and the stars fell to give us light. While I don't identify or feel connected to the religious aspects of this story, I found myself feeling admiration for the character of Lucida and struck by the idea of an offering, particularly an offering from the landscape, something that seems as futile or disposable or even useless as the supposed weeds might have seemed at first glance could still be an offering, an expression of humility and openness, something that still brought us meaning or even belonging in our relative smallness under the cold night sky. It was an expression of a willingness to give when there seemed to be nothing left. The poinsettia's ability to give goes beyond the religious or spiritual sense. It has about as many offerings as it does names. From the time of the ancient Aztecs, the flower went by the name Quetlaxoche and became a valuable tool for creating red and purple dyes. When the stem is cut, it bleeds a milky white sap, which the Aztecs used for medicinal purposes. And in some cases, it was believed that drinking the sap would give the gift of immortality. In the 16th century, missionaries arrived and spread the Catholic beliefs to Mexican indigenous communities. It didn't take long for Franciscan friars to notice the timing of these fiery flowers blooming into full blaze around their Christmas holiday. They'd collect them and gather them around nativity scenes, perhaps with the same humble intent as Lucida from the legend of the poinsettia. The plant took on the name of La Flor de Nochebuena, or the Christmas Eve flower. It would still take a few centuries before La Flor de Nochebuena crossed out of the warm climate of Mexico and in Central America. It was in 1828 when an American ambassador to Mexico, a man named Joel Roberts Poinsett, would ship cuttings of the flower back to his home of South Carolina. From there, he'd give these plants to family and fellow botanical enthusiasts. These first cuttings that Poinsett carefully boxed up and shipped to the States would be a spark that would catch fire and become a blaze that established this bloom as a Christmas standard in America. And as the blaze spread across the States, 
so did the name poinsettia, the name we're probably most familiar with, and perhaps it's most controversial. Ambassador Poinsett's legacy would be marked by his own wintry cruelty and his prejudice. It was this prejudice for indigenous peoples that led him to be removed from his post as Mexican ambassador and would lead him to his role of forcibly removing Native Americans from their homes as Secretary of War. This forcible removal was the Trail of Tears. It is jarring to receive one gift with all its beauty, promise, and possibility, but to also feel robbed of that possibility and of hope, all from the same source. The poinsettia continued to travel across the country and found its way to a Pennsylvania nursery in the hands of gardener and horticulturalist Robert Buist who would first sold the plant under its botanical name, Euphorbia pulcherima. From there, the Euphorbia pulcherima continued to grow in popularity, becoming its own force of economic nature for the Christmas season. By the 1920s, a California ranch run by Paul Eck Sr. worked to cultivate the compact descendant of the poinsettia that we know today. The Eck family's work proved lucrative and prolific. According to Mike Kofeld of Swanson's Nursery, around 70% of all commercially grown poinsettia plants in the U.S. can be traced back to the Eck Ranch. So when you next glimpse a poinsettia at the store, where leftover from the Christmas festivities being cleaned up and put away, there's a good chance its history is a direct line to a single farm out west. As we take on the final day of this year, the end of the season's celebrations, and face the looming stillness of winter ahead, I am reminded that despite the cold, there is more than its hard edges. Its austerity and its beauty are crisp and quiet. The color of the landscape is not all drained, but muted, and asks us to look a little closer. The short days then bring early sunsets that light up dried leaves and tree limbs into gold and amber. It offers us a chance to find a deeper reserve within us when there seems to be nothing left to give. The winter winds scatter seeds from dried husks, feeding the birds who brave the chill, and planting the rest with the hope, the seemingly faint possibility, and the promise of spring. And just as the fallen leaves clear our view of a distant horizon, the winter season clears our view to reveal a gift, an offering of rest, an inward turn, a kind of peace. Gathered, Storied Botanicals is a mostly monthly podcast. It was written and produced by me, Alison B. Young. Original music by Raven Bauer Durham. If you liked what you heard, please consider leaving a rating and review. I'll be 
in my own writing hibernation these next weeks, but please stay tuned for new episodes coming soon. To learn more, you can head over to gathered-storiedbotanicals.com. Thank you so much for listening and supporting this podcast. It means so much to me. Here's to a year ahead where we might all find these restorative offerings and also make our own. Happy New Year's, and until next time.